Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bones. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. All right. Um, this is a, a really huge topic. I don't know, like, atonement is like wars have been fought. Uh, denominations have branched off. Uh, churches have been split on this issue. When we, come, when we talk about things like heresy, like accusing each other of heresy, um, we don't realize, I think, that the sort of playing field of orthodoxy is pretty big. Like I have, like a lot of students are like, is this, is this heresy? I'm like, what? No. Are you like denying the Trinity? Like, but atonement <laughs> is in kind of the, the playing field perhaps is, is not as big, but um, I think churches like awaken maybe are less prone to talk about atonement. Um, we like talking about suffering and we like talking about our grief and honoring our sorrow. Um, but it really, in order to talk about like atonement and like shedding blood to cover over sin, um, we have to talk about sacrifice and, and bloodshed. And, and that is really a strange concept. Like if I could just sort of give us permission to think that atonement is weird for a minute. It, it is weird. And, and like we all, I think most people here probably grew up in the church, probably grew up evangelical. And so you've heard your whole life, like I was a sinner, um, but Jesus was the perfect sacrifice and Jesus's blood atoned for my sin. And so now because I have, I'm covered in the blood of Christ, I'm free. Uh, and then we kind of move on. But then deep down, especially like, you know, you get older and you, maybe you go through a bit of deconstruction or something. You're like, wait, can we talk about that? Hold up, back up. Why does blood have to be shed? Why can't an all-powerful God just decide to get forgive? Right? Like, can we just say that? Can we just bring that to, to speech? And be like, why? Like, like I kind of, I was never really satisfied as a kid because it was like, well, but you sinned and, and sin it leads to death. And so we have to kill something to fix the sin. Like, why do we have to kill something? Why do we have to take, especially, you know, like, I, I never grew up on a farm. Most of us buy our meat from the store. So you don't really know how meat gets to your table. You don't really understand kind of the, the, the end of the life of the animal that you're eating and whatnot. Um, so just in our kind of current cultural m mindset, it's like, but couldn't God just say, I forgive you? Like, why do we have to kill a, a lamb or a goat? It seems weird. Um, why can't an all-powerful God just decide to forgive without shedding the blood of something innocent? And it seems very um, sort of primitive, if I can use that term, this idea of like child sacrifice or like virgin sacrifice, sacrificing an a, a unblemished animal. Like these are not topics that often make sense in 2022. Can I say that? Right? You're not, it's strange. So good. This church is the place where we're supposed to be like, this is strange. Let's talk about it. Because um, if we never talk about it, we can kind of just get uh, entrenched in this like kind of Christian way of talking and thinking that st stops meaning anything. Um, if a perfect lamb has to be slaughtered, this is the other weird question. If, so, so, so like, let's just say we accept for a minute that blood has to be shed in order to lead to clean up the mess our sin makes in the world. And, and we know a little bit about the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. We know that they brought animals that were unblemished to be killed and, and slaughtered and as a sacrifice. And okay, because when, we, when, when you read that, and even if you don't know it very well, you know that they took a lamb and they killed it. 
but the, the animal didn't really suffer. Like it was a very fast death, right? It was like you kill it and then it's blood and it's meat and it's given on the altar. So then I understand the math that like the perfect unblemished lamb and then the perfect unblemished son of God. But then why couldn't, if, if Jesus's blood needed to be spilled just like that perfect lamb, also, I'm really just diving in. Hey, are you loving this? I'm like, let's just dive right in. Like, no introduction, no hold bar. Um, if it is really the blood of Jesus that is like the perfect blood that washes over all sin once and for all time, why couldn't Jesus have just been quickly killed like a lamb? Like, why couldn't it have just been like, you had to die? So like, drink this poison or like some really quick painless way of dying. Why the state sanctioned torture? Why the public humiliation and crucifixion? Why all the drama? What, what is, I have problems. And, and I think a lot of people, this happens. They're like, this doesn't make sense anymore. I, I don't understand. And then they don't ever have a space to kind of ask those questions. And then they just sort of walk away. And so I think it's a great honor, I think, on this Sunday, um, two Sundays before we, we sort of remember the death of Christ, the state-sanctioned torture and public execution of Christ, to sort of bring our questions forward. When we get used to using certain language and we don't really slow down to examine it, we can subconsciously get into some seriously strange theological terrain. In the most extreme, and this is sort of a bit exaggerated and dramatic, and so maybe no one ever actually heard it framed this way, but deep down we all kind of heard it framed this way, right? When we don't question the way we talk and the way we think, we accidentally get caught up thinking that this is the gospel. Are you ready? Here's the gospel. God hates you, and you deserve to die a slow and unending death. But if we could sacrifice an, a perfect being, then God's anger could be appeased and we could be okay for a while. Now, Jesus is the perfect being, and he volunteered to be for us a human sacrifice, which would end all sacrifices. And so if you believe in Jesus, then you're spared. It just doesn't, that doesn't sound like good news. You can't start the gospel as God hates you and you deserve to die. But the good news is, and, and, and so, but, but isn't, isn't that it? Isn't that what we kind of learned? And, and I don't know, maybe I, I agree, like that's a little extreme and no one's ever actually heard it said that way. Um, but if we never open this up for dialogue and exploration and we never actually like open the book of Leviticus, it blows my mind how many people are like the first to throw around words like heresy when it comes to atonement who've never cracked open the book of Leviticus. So here's the good news for you and for me. I didn't start out my journey wanting to be a pastor. I started out my journey wanting to be an Old Testament scholar. And partially because when I was in, you know, should I be a youth pastor stage of life, I realized I didn't really know anything about the Old Testament and I didn't understand the book of Leviticus and sacrifices and the blood of an unblemished lamb. And I didn't understand that. And, and it seemed like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did and, and I was missing out on something. And I just, I, I used to go and spread, share the gospel a lot. I went on a lot of missions trips. I really like evangelizing. And I realized a lot of really intelligent people when I shared the gospel were like, but why, why do we have to shed blood? And I was like, because that's the way it is. Listen. And I didn't really have an answer. So I wanted to study the Old Testament. And sure enough, <clears throat> I did a, a, a master's in Old Testament. And it blew my mind. And I remember a moment in, in class studying Leviticus, and I was like, this is what the church desperately needs to hear in, in our part of the world, and this is good news. Um, it's really good news. The book of Leviticus is maybe my favorite book of the Bible. 
which is weird for me to say, but just bear with me for a minute. And I think Awakeners especially, you'll love this. Like you're just hippie enough that you're gonna love this like very quick, cool thing about Leviticus. And then you'll wanna go home and read it and you'll be like, wow. Um, so um, before I unpack what this is here, uh, Glendon, you could go back. See, what I thought as a kid, cause I was like, we didn't actually read Leviticus, but we kind of knew basically what it was about. I thought the story was this, every time you sinned, you know, you're like walking to work and then you like, I don't know, fall and curse or you get mad at your neighbor who cut you off in traffic. Then you have to stop, go out to the field, get a young lamb and kill it. Like go to the temple, go to the priest and kill it and be like, I'm sorry, I sinned, I did this bad thing. And so like, man, a really, really pious and good person would be going to the temple with the lamb every single day. Like it would just be this constant like bloodshed. Um, and I thought that was it. It was like when you sinned, you had to bring a perfect animal to die. Uh, I didn't realize that, that that's not really, that, first of all, in the Old Testament, there's no sacrifice for, for intentional sins, which is kind of like, what? Um, and the sacrifice isn't really something that you do as an individual that like sort of the priest is just there hanging out and it's like, oh, Karen's here. Hi, Karen. <laughs> What'd you do this time? All right, there's your lamb. Great. Oh, Billy, you're back already. You were here this morning. And the priest is just there hanging out waiting for everyone to kind of come with their tail between their legs like I did it again. Um, that's not the priest's job. There's so much more going on to it that's really going on and it's really, really profound. So technically, <clears throat> there are five sacrifices in the Old Testament, five. Um, five main ones that sort of everybody could participate in. Now I'm gonna actually talk about in a minute here the sixth one, the big one, the Day of Atonement, but you gotta kinda understand what sacrifices were and what they weren't in order to understand what the blood of Christ does. So a sacrifice was essentially a shared meal. It's a shared meal. Um, there's five. The first one is called the burnt offering. And uh, the animal that is chosen for this sacrifice is completely burned on the altar, every part of it. And the idea is that every single part of that animal goes to God. The priest doesn't eat any of it, and the, the human who brings the, the animal doesn't eat any of it. It all goes to God. And it's this really profound, important sacrifice, which is a symbol of complete devotion and surrender, saying, everything I am for you, everything I have for you. Um, and it is a beautiful, essentially a sacrifice of thanksgiving, of surrender and of devotion. And then there's another sacrifice called the thank offering, which is a grain offering. So the burnt offering would be an animal, like a bull, but the thank offering is grain. And it's like the best grain that you have, and you mix it with oil and incense, so it would be like a really fancy thing you'd bake in your kitchen. It would be beautiful. And it's um, an offering of thanks for the first fruits of your harvest. Essentially, it's like, wow, this, this bounty that I have, I, I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it. Um, this belongs to God, and it came from God, so thank you. So it's a way of saying thanks. And it's cool because you would bring this special like loaf that you made out of your first fruits and God and the priest would eat it together. So you would give a portion of it to God on the altar and the priest would eat, ceremonially eat the other portion. So it's like God and the priest are having a special meal of Thanksgiving. Come on, as if that's not like, like a, a big deal. And then there's the shalom offering or the, the peace offering, shalom, which is so beautiful because this is another thank offering um, it's voluntary and you bring it and you often bring it and then the whole community or, or some of your neighbors would be there uh, and it's this beautiful way of, of just sort of saying, hey, maybe me and you make an oath together, uh, a, co a covenant together. Uh, it's a way of like, I wish the peace of Christ upon you. Like I wish shalom and peace and well-being on you and us and our community. And so let us bring a shalom offering to the, to the priest, to the temple. 
And this is a really sacred offering because it's actually shared between both God, the priest, and the family offering it, the community offering it. So it's a sacred meal. And in, in, in Leviticus 1 to 7, where you find these five listed, it's always, um, there's an aroma that's pleasing to the Lord. They absolutely understood this as food that God would eat. So I want to have a sacred meal. Sometimes like in ancient cultures or in more like cultures, uh, our culture, I think here in the West is the least good at this. Did that make sense grammatically? Ish. Um, <clears throat> but hospitality isn't necessarily like a as important of a thing for us here in this part of the world, but in parts of the world where hospitality is everything, then inviting someone to eat with you is huge. It's a big deal, like the biggest deal. And so the shalom offering is um, we eat with God. It's a sacred meal. And then there's a sin offering, which is now just shared between God and the priest. So you bring the, the, the offering, the lamb or the goat or something, or if you're really poor, you can bring a pigeon um, or some grain. And uh, essentially, this is really cool because the priest would give the fat from that animal, or there's fat in grains, and burn it on the altar. And then the rest uh, would be consumed by the priest. And the idea is that um, I was ceremonially unclean, and I bring this offering, and now I am ceremonially clean. So that's not from like, I cut so someone cut me off and I flipped them the bird or something. That's like about, you know, ceremonial cleanliness that could be like I came in contact with blood or I came in contact with a body that had died um I came in contact with an animal that died like somehow I was made ceremonially unclean and so this is an offering to say I want to be ceremonially clean and then finally the guilt offering um again a meal shared just between God and the priest and this is a profound one because the idea is that I have somehow accidentally desecrated a holy place um most often by depriving someone of their rights and so I have caused, uh, I've, I've messed up the beautiful, well-ordered system of God in some way. And so you bring this offering to God and God and the priest share it. And all five of these are like a shared meal. Um, and they're, they're, it, it's about eating with God and slowing down to eat with God. Uh, and, and we have to just, let, just hear me out. Okay, the folks who produced the book of Leviticus, like where that book came from, this was an agrarian community. They did not buy their food at the market. They did not buy their food at the store. They did not order it from Amazon. They farmed. They had a small, like, like every household had their own few little animals, like maybe a, a, a small herd of sheep or goats, maybe one cow, maybe one oxen, but it was small time family agrarian community. And, it, it, and they'd be so close to their animals that they'd bring their animals into their own house at night. It's like your boot room in your house. You like had your like six goats, and your donkey and your ox, you brought them into the boot room with like a big warm bowl of water and they slept there. So like imagine being a little kid and you have uh, six little goats. Those would be like your friends, your pets. You would know them. You would know their personalities. You would know the donkey, the ox, and, and you would be intimately connected to the well-being of these living beings. If the field did not produce a good harvest that year, you would suffer, but so would these animals you love, right? Like if you can't afford to buy dog food, it's really sad because you love your dog. And so this community, <clears throat> these are not just, like, like these are animals they love. If they're bringing an animal to be sacrificed, it's an animal that they care about, um, that they love. And so it is not done lightly. And so what's cool is this is also literally the only time you eat meat. 
They don't have a butcher. There isn't a town butcher. That's the priest. The priest is the town butcher. You don't eat meat. Like in, in our culture, we eat meat like two, three times a day. But in ancient Israel, they were lucky if they ate meat five times a year. Five times a year. And when you eat meat, it's because we sacrificed part of it to God um, and we ate the rest. Like you eat your meat at the temple or at the, the tabernacle. So they eat meat five days a year. That's it. And, and when you eat meat, you don't ever just like go out in the backyard, slaughter one of your lambs. Are you kidding? Your kids would be crying hysterically. Like, what are you doing? That's my lamb. You don't just go slaughter an animal and like eat it. It's a big deal. You go to the tabernacle. You honor its life. You, you offer some of it back to God and some of it to the priest. And then you eat it as a family. And that would be a sacred meal. And I bet you not a single morsel would go to waste. Not a single morsel would be eaten without gratitude. So it's profound, like show of hands, who wants to be part of that community? Like I do, like that's like a permaculture eco village where we care for each other in the earth and it's like regenerative agriculture, sustainable farming practices, like this is the dream. And, and every like indigenous group in the world, every land protector group in the world is like, if we could go back to this in some way, we could stop the, the mass destruction of our earth. Like it's the dream. And that community produced the book of Leviticus. And then if I could geek out just a little bit harder, just, just bear with me. Okay, next slide. This really profound thing about the Bible is that um, the first five books of the Bible is called the Torah or the Pentateuch. There's five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, big words, mostly Latin or Greek, except Numbers, which is English. That's weird. But um, these ones are kind of the hard ones, so, some of them. Like not a lot of people have read Deuteronomy or Leviticus. We did a series through Numbers as a church. That was fun. Dallas carried that, so we miss him. Um, the way these five books are arranged, though, in the Bible is very important because um, the way that the ancient kind of writers worked, very different than how like English writers in the West um, work when they're writing, is that the book in the very center of the five is the most important. So Leviticus is at the dead center. And then you would expect Exodus and Numbers to mirror each other. They do. The stories mirror each other like very, there, there's like wilderness wandering like they, they mirror each other and then Genesis and Deuteronomy would mirror each other and again they really do in a lot of key ways so not a lot of people are like whoa dang I didn't realize that Leviticus was the most important and the dead center of the Torah you would expect that like Genesis is the most important or maybe Exodus but certainly not Leviticus but for the ancient uh, readers of Torah Leviticus is in the center and now next slide the book of Leviticus. So Leviticus is at the dead center. Now the entire book of Leviticus is designed as a chiasm or like a chiastic structure, which means the center of the book of Leviticus is the heart of the Jewish faith. It's the heart of our faith. Uh, and at the very dead center of the book of Leviticus is this sacred uh, event called the Day of Atonement. And so really, this is here, here's the book of Leviticus. What's not to love? First, you have the five sacred sacrifices. It, it doesn't waste any time. Leviticus 1 goes into the, the whole burnt offering. Then you have ritual purity laws, which are like, don't touch blood, don't touch dead animals. You know, don't, you know, if you give birth, you're unclean for X amount of days, like that kind of thing. And then you have the Day of Atonement in the middle. And then the moral purity laws. So don't hold your wages back from your workers. Don't, call, don't put a stumbling block in front of the blind. Don't abuse people. Um, like your moral purity laws. And then at the very end of Leviticus is the five sacred festivals, like the festival of like 
booths or, the, or, or, or tabernacles and you have the five. So it's all about community. It's all about shared food and how to love your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus is asked what's the most important law, he literally just quotes Leviticus and Deuteronomy. He says the most important, the sum of the law is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. That's Deuteronomy. And love your neighbor as yourself, which is a summary of the whole book of Leviticus. We're going to eat together, break bread together. And our, our animals and our grains and these things that are we are desperately connected to are going to be a part of this and, and who we are. And it's really hard to eat food with people that you have conflict with. So it's this beautiful community vision of, of uh, we have to work pretty hard to stay in community with each other and continue to love each other. And so here, let's just talk quickly about the Day of Atonement that's in the dead center of Leviticus. Next slide. It's a very strange, I love it. I wish I could spend 15 minutes unpacking this, but I will not. Um, but please know that I want to. In the so this is the very center of the entire Torah and the dead center of the entire Pentateuch, and I would say the center of our faith and how Paul understands Jesus on the cross. We have the Day of Atonement. So this is um, a special day of the year where the priest, the high priest, takes two goats. One goat will be sacrificed on the altar to atone for the sins of the people, and the other goat will be released living deep into the wilderness as a gift for Azazel, which is a very strange ancient being. You can ask me about, we could talk about that later at Leopold's maybe, I don't know. But, uh, and this is key to the center of the community life. And it says, um, so the first goat that it says, um, he shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way, he will make atonement for the most holy place or the sanctuary because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. So this is key. Never once does the blood of the sacrifice get sprinkled on the people. The people are not sprinkled with the blood. The blood does not wash the people. The blood is sprinkled on the God's throne on the mercy seat. So in this special like tent in the very back is this sacred space that no one's allowed to enter except the high priest. And he's only allowed to enter it one day of the year. And that's this day. And before he can even enter it, he has to do a special sacrifice just to make sure that he's clean and like purified and, and, and good and right with God and right with the community. And then he goes back and he has the blood from this goat and he simply like imagine if this is the altar he sprinkles it on the sides of the altar and they understood that this was god's throne that god sits here and dwells here and so as long as our community is arranged with god at the center we're safe from the powers of death that are lingering out beyond the outskirts of our of our encampment um and should god get up and leave well death would swallow us up we would be totally helpless so our sin collectively begins to corrupt the place and, and, and just seeps through the community and causes all sorts of pain and division and anger and hatred. And it just becomes a, a place of chaos. But, but this God is a God of life and, and shalom and forgiveness and mercy. So once a year, they come together as a community and reflect on how important it is that God stays here with us in our midst. So the blood atones for the land where the altar sits. The land is then purified so that God can stay there on that piece of the earth. And as long as we're near there, then we're good. And that's how they understood it. The blood was not being sprinkled on the people. Um, <clears throat> so the other cool thing is, it's not about intentional sin. 
You don't go there because someone cut you off in traffic and you flip them the bird. That's not it. There is no sacrifice for intentional sin in the Bible. Um, intentional sin is dealt with in this way, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's it. So I, it's like if you flip someone the bird in traffic, then someone's going to flip you the bird in traffic, and then we're good, I guess. It doesn't seem, Gandhi has thoughts on that, right? But, but like there's the idea of like that's how law worked in, in the book of Exodus, in the book of Leviticus, Deuteronomy. When, when you kill someone, like it's eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Uh, so there is no sacrifice for, for intentional sin. All of these sacrifices are about the unintentional, subconscious sin that we didn't really mean to commit. Um, and it's not about the individual sin either, which is really fascinating right now in 2022. Um, it's not about your own individual guilt. Like it is that if it's like I gave birth and now I have like postpartum bleeding and I need to like become pure where I'm ritually impure. But for the most part, especially the Day of Atonement, it's about the collective, systemic, unintentional sin of the whole community. Systemic oppression and injustice that we all contribute to, even though none of us wants to and, and none of us like, None of us intentionally does it, but we all contribute to this system. We all do. We're all wearing clothing that was made in less than shalom-filled spaces. We all drove here in vehicles that emit carbon emissions that are destroying the earth. Like, we're all contributing subconsciously and consciously to systems of destruction and death in the world. And the moment a baby's born, we wrap that baby in a blanket that was made by children in a factory in Indonesia. The moment you're born, you're contributing to a system of death and destruction in the world. And this one day a year, they get together and they beg God to atone for the systemic and collective and unintentional sins of the entire community. The way we benefit from injustice or the ways we stay silent for injustice. And, and that's the heart of this whole thing. It's not that God's like, mm, I'm craving goat today. That's not it. God's like, I want justice and mercy and neighbor love to flow here. And so get together as a community, and every year, once a year, there's a fresh start. Wouldn't that be nice? So check this out. There's three important verses um, to kind of help us frame all of this that you, you've heard sometimes. But, and these are from the prophet speaking about God. So we have to reconcile these verses with the whole sacrificial system in Leviticus. In, in Hosea 6.6, 6, um, God says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offering. So like God's not just like, I am God and this is the way it is. You have to kill innocent beings for me. God's like, no, it, the whole point of this is the mercy and the forgiveness and the community reconciliation. This is what I desire is mercy. And in fact, earlier in Hosea, he's like, I don't want your sacrifices if it doesn't come with it justice that flows like a river. In Micah 6, 8, it says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? with 10,000 rivers of olive oil. Have you ever felt that? Like, what more do I have to do, God? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then God responds through the prophet Micah. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. We don't want 10,000 gallons of olive oil, not 1,000 rams. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. There would be no day of atonement if we could figure out mercy, if we could figure out forgiveness and kindness and gentleness. That's what God wants, not the sacrifice. Um, and then in Amos 5, God just rejects the system. He says, listen, even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. 
but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. The whole atonement system is about how from God flows mercy and judgment, uh, sorry, mercy and justice. And we gather around that source and we drink from those waters and those waters inform us. And, and, and um, the atonement is so that those waters could continue to flow in our land and in our community. And so when we get to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, we have to hold all of this. Um, when we start talking about Jesus satisfying the wrath of God and whatnot. So I want you to just um, think about this with me. The blood of Jesus is not ever sprinkled on the people. The blood of Jesus isn't sprinkled on people. It's not like Jesus dies and they pierce his side and then the blood sprays on everyone's face and they're like, oh, finally I'm clean. It's not about my own individual sin and Jesus's blood being sprinkled on me. The blood of Jesus is just like the, the, uh, the goat of atonement in Leviticus, which is sprinkled on the altar. The blood of Jesus is sprinkled on the earth, on the land. And that's wild because we're only supposed to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice inside the temple on the mercy seat. So it's still about the land. It's about the place where God dwells. It's the place where God calls home. And, and, and like until this moment of Jesus's death, the home of God is in the back corner of the temple where no one's allowed to go except once a year the high priest to just sprinkle blood on it to make sure God stays there. The blood of Jesus then is shed upon the earth. This is huge because then that means God could leave that back corner of the temple and roam freely about the earth and nothing we do make it so God leaves. Like there's all sorts of fantastic, amazing things going on on that Good Friday on um, Blood of Jesus thing. So God lives at the headwaters of justice and mercy. Where justice is, there's God. Where there's corruption and greed and hatred, there's not God. Um, and so imagine if we as a community got together once a year, confess that justice does not flow from us. We are not a merciful people. And we need a fresh start together. Not just me, an individual, go and have my own fresh start, and a month later, you know, you get your fresh start, and then a month later, all of us, every single person that's ever called Awaken Home, imagine coming together this once a year, looking around and being like, I've accidentally contributed to a lot of pain and hurt. We have contributed together to division. We have contributed, whether it's staying silent when we should have spoken, maybe it was speaking in a bit of an exaggerated tone about people who weren't present. We have all contributed to injustice and unmercy. Unmercy? Non-mercy. Anti-mercy? We have been sowers of death and despair. And we come before God and we bring something precious to us. And we devote it to God and then we have a meal together with one another, with God at the center. And our prayer is heal our land and dwell with us, O God. And may justice and mercy flow here from us with us, through us, from me to you, from me to my enemies. A once a year reset. Is that not the most beautiful thing? Like, don't, aren't you all like, when is that retreat happening? Can we do it next weekend? Right? Who would come? Who wouldn't? What work is there yet to be done? It's a fresh start. Do you know that um, Jewish people, like Orthodox Jews, celebrate this day, Day of Atonement, every year? It's like one of their most sacred days. It's called Yom Kippur. For 40 days before Yom Kippur, there's a fast like us in Lent, um, in, in uh, 40 days to prepare yourself for this sacred day, this sacred communal reset. And a week before, like the full seven days before the official, this year it's in September sometime, 
a full week before is called the 10 days of repentance, where literally the tradition is as a community, you pick up your phone, you have seven days, every single person that you kind of wronged in the last year, or every single person that you have some unresolved conflict with, um, you call them and you just, you just, you just name it. Hey, so it's been a weird year. Am I right? You and I, where did we go wrong? I just want you to know that I love you and I'm sorry for the ways I hurt you and that I've sown seeds of distrust and, and, and seeds of, of anxiety and, and, and unforgiveness and I just want to be, make it right with you. And the whole community does that for seven days. Imagine every time your phone rings, it's someone calling to apologize to you and, and you have to pick up your phone. And we hold do that as a community. Imagine seven days straight of doing that, making those difficult phone calls and then we come together and it's one of our own precious goats that we all know and love, that we all raise, that sleeps in our house and we sacrifice it, and it's this way of saying, heal our land, may justice and mercy flow here. Let's start again now. That's pretty beautiful. I want that, I want that in my bones, like I want that deep. And I think John's gospel is um, trying to draw us into that vision and that dream. The book of John begins, John the Baptist uh, hasn't had his like baptized Jesus moment yet, and John does something unique, it's profound. It says, um, this is chapter one. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, behold, the Lamb of God. It's the first time Jesus is called that. The Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And then um, John 3.16 is a verse we all know, but I've tried to um, change up the translation, but I'm using N.T. Wright's translation. It's, it is actually a little closer to the Greek than the like, for God to love the world, he gave his one and only son. Um, it's the exact same, but... I, you know, sometimes if you frame it a little differently, it captures your imagination again as if for the first time. And so in John 3, 16 to 17, it says, This, you see, is how God loved the world, by giving his only special son, so that everyone who trusts in him should not be lost, but should share in the life of God's new age. After all, God didn't send the son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world could be saved by him. And this is picked up later in the gospel. Not a lot of folks notice this, and I don't think I made a slide for it, but when Pontius Pilate reveals Jesus, like he's wearing the crown of thorns, he's been already like tortured in part, he, he puts Jesus forward and he says, behold the man. And in Greek, it's very close to like John saying, behold the Lamb of God, that when Jesus comes out, Pilate says, behold the man. And then the, the people cry out, crucify him, crucify him. <clears throat> in the book of Revelation, uh, they're at the throne room of God, uh, and, and John is at the throne room, and he's pretty freaked out by this experience. And it's, there's no one worthy to open the scroll. There's no one worthy to open the scroll of life. And then someone says, behold, the Lion of Judah. And he's like, oh, the Lion of Judah, great. But then a lion never shows up. There's never a lion showing up in Revelation. What shows up is a bloodied lamb. Not a symbol of imperial power by any means, but a lamb, a lamb that's already been sacrificed. Um, and then finally, one of the last verses in the whole Bible is in Revelation 21 where it says, behold, the home of God is now among humanity. So hear me out. The blood of the atonement lamb is sprinkled on the mercy seat so that the mercy seat would be clean so that God would stay. Because when it becomes unclean, God leaves. We want God to stay and that anxiety around God leaving. People who've been exiled, um, there's anxiety about God leaving. Now the blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, his blood is not spilled in the temple. His blood is not shed and sprinkled on the mercy seat. It's sprinkled upon the world. Think of that. For God so loved the world. The, the other word in Greek is, could be the land, the earth. 
for God so loved the world. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world, not just the mercy seat. Jesus is this like cosmic uh, invitation to think bigger. The blood of Christ is spilt upon the earth. Now the whole earth is the mercy seat. The whole earth is the place where God lives and dwells, not just the back corner of the temple. It's now the whole earth, right there where the people who crucified him are there, the people mocking him, the people spitting on him. He's shedding his blood right there. And now this, behold, is the mercy seat of God. This is now the great headwaters of justice and mercy and kindness. Now, there is a, a slide, another image here. When Jesus dies, um, in some of the Gospels, they say that the curtain in the temple is torn. So maybe now that makes sense to you because the back room of the temple where the mercy seat is, there's a big, heavy, heavy, heavy curtain, thick. And no, you only cross it one day a year and only the high priest, if he's good enough, can go cross it. But Jesus dies, his blood is shed, the atonement lamb who takes away the sin of the world, and you hear a ripping sound in the temple. The curtain is torn. The curtain which separates the mercy seat from the rest of this wounded world. See, when I was young, I used to think that the curtain was torn so that I could go in. And this was a big deal because I was a young girl and I wanted to be a pastor and that wasn't allowed. Only boys could be priests, so girls can't be priests. And so I loved this story. The, temp the curtain is torn. So, you know, before the curtain was torn, only high priests could go back there. But now I could go back there too because it's been torn. But the more I studied the Bible and I continue to study it like it's my full-time job, I see that the curtain tearing is not about now anybody can go in. The curtain tearing is that now God can get out. Now God can go out. Now God can move freely about this world. The whole world is atoned. The earth is now the mercy seat. God is free to stay, and nothing you or I ever do could change that. And so before I conclude, I am landing this plane, I want to just, let's just, explore for a moment the actual cross of Christ. It's a brutal death. Jesus is tortured, flogged, stripped naked, mocked, humiliated. Um, it's a long, drawn-out, horrible, painful death that surely none of us can imagine. And in some parts of the New Testament, Paul talks about this, about um, the blood of Jesus satisfying the wrath of God. And we're Baptists, um, and so for Baptists, um, penal substitutionary atonement is kind of our favorite. There's a few different ways of looking at the atonement. All are biblical, but Baptists kind of like this one the most. It's the one I often like the least, so uh, there's some wrestling. And I realized why I like it the least not that long ago. And it's because um, of a heresy that I think all of us who really like this atonement theory are guilty of. So hear me out. This brutal kind of death of Jesus, we, we've kind of understood this as Baptist, is to say that Jesus is satisfying the wrath of God. Wrath of God, boy, that's a tough pill to swallow. Isn't there enough wrath in the world? What kind of wrath? Why do we need wrath? Why, what is God's wrath achieving in the world? And I realize um, my husband, uh, David, has worked with a lot of incarcerated folks. And I think about wrath in the prison system. So bear with me for a second. The prison system in Canada is supposed to be about restorative justice, right? Someone commits a crime, and we love this person who committed the crime, and we acknowledge that they need help. Things are not okay. Healthy, flourishing people who are, have a strong place of belonging in a community do not commit these crimes. 
This person does. So we acknowledge that they need to be restored lovingly, put back together, healed. And so the dream is that there'd be a season where they would be taken away from their community to be restored and healed. And then when they're released from this time of restoration, they would be fully functioning, flourishing, connected members of the community. The reality is that's not how people come out of prison, is it? They come out of prison with deeper wounds, stronger sense of distrust, a stronger sense of vengeance and mercy and an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We have a, a friend that we love very much who's been in and out of jail since he was 11. And he is the least merciful person I know. And I don't mean that harshly to him, but he says, no one's ever shown me mercy a day in my life. My whole life is about serving your time, paying your dues to society. I disrespected society, so now I have to pay. So whenever he gets out of jail, he's like, that's his MO. That's his like, if you disrespect me, you will pay. Because that's how the system has shaped his imagination. So he gets out and he goes right back in. Because the restorative justice system is actually a lot more punitive than it is restorative. We don't restore people in prison. We punish them. And it doesn't work. And so who are we to imagine that if we know that the prison system that is punitive doesn't work, we must acknowledge that a, a justice system of God doesn't work if it's just punitive. Is God just punishing us because he's angry? Is it just punishment? God's wrath can't be punitive. I'm sorry if this is too philosophical or theological. I hope you're following. But God's wrath can't be punitive because if it's punitive, it serves no one but God. Right? I'm mad at you, and I just want you to suffer because you did something bad, and I'm mad at you. So I just, like, I don't know, punch you in the face? I didn't really. What do you do when you're really, I don't know. You're mad at someone, and so you have this moment of anger. You have your moment of wrath. That feels good for me, but it didn't do anything for you. That's the point. It doesn't serve you in any way. It only serves me. Punitive wrath cannot come from a place of love. And if God is love, nothing God does is just for God. Nothing God does is just purely to serve God's own interests. Everything God does is about serving the other. Everything that flows from God flows from the heart of love. And so the wrath of God must, therefore, be restorative. It must be regenerative. So what does God's wrath poured out upon Jesus actually restore or regenerate? And this is where we accidentally slip into heresy. When folks start talking about this, Jesus satisfying the wrath of God, they often slip into heresy without realizing it. <clears throat> um, and it's not good. When we think of Jesus as simply God's, say, perfect son, and that, if you only had John 3.16, obviously we get there, the one and only son of God. Jesus is God's perfect son. And then we have this story where God killed his son to satisfy God's own wrath. In a world full of domestic violence and child abuse, I just don't think we should, uh, we should roll with that story without checking it, right? There's this father who's so angry that he just needs to pummel something. And, and, and he was going to pummel me and you, but then Jesus stepped in and said, no, dad, beat me instead. I'm out. I'm over it. That's, that story, that's not working. It's not working. That can't be it. That can't be what's happening. It can't be that God was just so angry he had to hurt something and he wanted something to suffer. So Jesus said, I volunteer as tribute. That can't be the gospel. And the good news is it's not. In fact, it's heresy. And it's not the story we should tell our children. Because guess what? Um, Jesus is God. That's what we proclaim as Christians. Jesus is God. Like we, we, we have like Jesus is the son of God. Like, so there's a bit of differentiation. But Jesus is God. 
God wasn't so angry he had to pummel something, and so Jesus stood in as like the perfect virgin child sacrifice. So God, you know, took out his anger on Jesus. God took on the anger of God. The wrath of God is poured out upon God. God is on the altar. God initiates this whole affair. God's like, I don't want to be trapped in the back room of the temple. So God puts himself, God's self on the altar. For God so loved the world, God gave God's self. And on the cross, on the cross, God cries out, it is finished. I'm done. I'm done being your sin accountant. I'm done keeping score. I'm done keeping track. As far as the east is from the west, my wrath is satisfied. All things are made new. Behold, the blood of Christ on the cross is certainly, yes, the blood of covenant, the blood of liberation, the blood of new life, as we've explored in this series, but the blood of atonement. At, at the heart of our faith is this profound idea that God exhausted the wrath of God upon himself and said, it's, an, it's over, it's enough, I'm done. The very beginning of our Bible is a story of two brothers, Cain and Abel. They've just been kicked out of the most perfect place, the Garden of Eden, where God is, where God dwells. And every day, it seems, they bring a sacrifice to the gates of that garden because they're desperately trying to get back in. That's it, right? They're going to the gate where the flaming sword is and the cherubim, and they're bringing offerings because they're trying to get back into the garden. Please let us in. I'll bring a thousand rams. I'll bring a 10,000 gallons of olive oil. We want back in. It's a sad story. They don't get back in. And, and sometimes that story has been what's shaped our imagination as, as people of faith. We think that the scriptures or sacrifice is like a bar of soap, and if we just get clean enough and good enough and smooth enough, then maybe God will let us in. Then maybe God will show up, and maybe God will speak. But the more I study this story, I realize, and, and this is the gospel, and it's much better news. Sacrifice, faith, our tradition is not a bar of soap. It's a blade, dividing bone from marrow, revealing the wound, revealing the merciless place, revealing the places of scarcity and doubt and fear and hatred. And when it's exposed and it's revealed, we realize that this whole thing we're doing, we're singing, praying, studying scripture, communion, is not about us trying to get good enough in hopes that God lets us into that special place. It's about being open and exposed to mercy, to regeneration, to, to the cosmic yes. It's that God rushes towards us. It's like Cain and Abel's sacrifice. We are Cain and Abel constantly trying to compete and sacrifice and get good enough and get better and hope that God accepts us. And here we have at the heart of our faith, Jesus himself gets on the altar and says, you're good enough. I accept you. I want to be with you just as much as you want to be with me. Let's eat. Let's have a sacred meal together. And God is at once the host of the meal, the sacred guest at the table, and the meal on our plates. And all is consumed and all become one. You and me and the creator of the universe. The blood that's shed is God's, not ours. And mercy flows from that. And justice flows with that. Which is why, and this is literally my conclusion, in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul, I love Paul so much, and, and Paul, Paul never once talks about the life of Jesus. 
never once. He, he one time he kind of talks about the communion table, but he never once. If you want to know Jesus, read the Gospels. If you want to know Christ, read Paul. But the summary of Paul's teaching is this in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, while I was with you, I sought to know nothing but Christ crucified. The God of the universe, the source of all life, on his own altar, satisfying his own wrath, fulfilling his own standard of justice and mercy, showing us what it means to love neighbor as self, showing us sacrificial love, showing us that death doesn't get the final say and that our hatred and fear for one another is not what ultimately shapes us. It is the sacrificial atoning blood of God that is poured out upon the whole earth and nothing you or I ever do will make it so that that God cannot be in our midst.